This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Maestro Classics brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. The Maestro Classics Stories in Music has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classics CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Here's an opera math quiz for you. If 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3, which operatic trio are we? Here's one more hint. This work made its world premiere right here at the Met almost exactly a hundred years ago. The answer is coming up on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Puccini composed the three distinct operas of Il Tritico with the intention that they always be performed together. That's exactly how audiences are experiencing them this season as we celebrate the centenary of Il Tritico's world premiere at the Met. I'm Stuart Holt, and in this pre-performance lecture, my podcast co-host, Naomi Baratera, explores the musical language, source materials, and the themes that link these three short operas. On December 15, 1918, Metropolitan Opera General Manager Giulio Gatti-Cazzazza sent a cable to Giacomo Puccini, reporting on the reception of the world premiere of Puccini's opera Il Tritico the night before. Gatti-Cazzazza stated, Most happy to announce the complete, authentic success of the Tritico. At the end of each opera, long, very sincere demonstrations, more than 40 warm curtain calls all together. In spite of public notice for bidding encores, by insistence, Loretta's aria was repeated. Principal strength, Morenzoni, the conductor, magnificent. Farrar, Muzio, Easton, De Luca, Monasano, Didor, incomparable singers and actors. Daily press confirmed success, expressing itself very favorably on the worth of operas, enthusiastically for Gianni Schicchi. It was very unusual that Gatti Cazzazza would have had to send a cable at all to report on the world premiere. In actuality, Puccini was present at every single world premiere of his work, with only two exceptions, Il Tritico and Turandot. Turandot was left incomplete when Puccini passed away, the score finished and a world premiere mounted after his death. When Il Tritico made its world premiere, it was only a month and a few days after Armistice Day, the end of what was supposed to be the war to end all wars, World War I, on November 11, 1918. Because the Western world was still recovering from the ravages of war, transatlantic travel was not yet safe, nor was there a wide variety of passenger vessels actually making the voyage. 
Some scholars have suggested that Gatti Kazatza slightly misrepresented the reception of the work with the New York public. Of the three one-act operas that would make up Puccini's triptych, it was the third, Johnny Skiki, that New York audiences raved about. The other two, Il Tabaro and Swarangelica, were not a failure, but neither were they instant hits. When Gatti Kazatza accurately represented was the star-studded cast, and the singing was praised by the press across all three works. So what motivated Puccini to pursue a trio of short operas? Where did he find inspiration for the stories he chose to pursue? What happens in each opera, and are there any hit arias? How do we describe the musical language of these works, and do they differ one from another, or from Puccini's output as a whole? And is there any connective tissue, musically or dramatically, that holds this triptych together? In the rest of our time together, we'll explore all these questions, proceeding in the order they were designed to be performed, which means we'll begin with Il Tabaro. There is some evidence to suggest that Puccini had the idea of writing a series of one-act operas as early as 1904, the same year that Madama Butterfly made its world premiere. Both Lan Cavallo's Pagliacci and Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana had been premiered several years before this, and both had experienced a success as short one-act works. Puccini was interested in Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy as a source, but nothing immediately came of the idea. In 1910, Puccini had experienced considerable financial and artistic success with La Fanchula del West, and by 1911, he was once again on a restless and aggressive hunt for his next libretto. And he considered many options, but nothing felt quite right, and the hunt continued. Then in 1912, Puccini was in Paris supervising a production of La Fonchula del West when he took a night off and went to the theater. The story was a dark and sordid tale. He went to see La Hoopalanda by Didier Gold. It was a kind of theater noir piece, and Puccini was immediately attracted to it. He felt it would make a great one-act opera, and began discussing the work with his playwright-director friend, Giovacchino Forzano. Forzano suggested a man named Ferdinando Martini as a possible librettist up to the task. Puccini engaged him to start the project in 1913, but Martini's progress was so slow, and Puccini's criticism so harsh, that Martini ended up walking away from the project entirely, which left Puccini once again looking for a librettist. He turned to Giuseppe Adami, who he was already under contract with for another project, something that would become La Rondine. Adami took over work on La Hupalanda, which translated into Italian, became Il Tabaro, or in English, The Cloak. Adami set to work on Tabaro by October of 1915, and the libretto text and all of the music was complete by the end of November 1916. Puccini had to set compositional work on his triptych aside while he finished La Rondine, which made its world premiere in Monte Carlo in 1917. After Il Tritico was completed, the composer's first choice of world premiere locale, Rome, was still recovering from the war, and an operatic premiere of such magnitude was not possible. So when news came of an offer from the Metropolitan Opera, Puccini jumped at the chance for another world premiere in New York City, which is how Il Tritico came to the stage in 1918. 
If you read several musicological analyses of Puccini's musical style in Il Tritico, you will notice that scholars tend to describe it as an important turning point in Puccini's style. Some call it problematic, some find it rather elusive to describe at all, but overall there's a prevailing sentiment that something in Puccini's music was beginning to change in La Fanchula del West and emerged full force in the score of Il Tritico. William Weaver described the trio of operas as being a panoramic view of the tangle of artistic stimuli that he received from contemporary musicians. Puccini himself listed some of the composers most influential to him during the time in a letter to a critic friend, saying, I will show you the scores of Debussy, Strauss, Dukas, and others. You will see how they are all dog-eared from constant rereading, all annotated by me. Maestro Antonio Paprano of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden once described Puccini's musical style in saying, Puccini, I think, although he was known as a great melodist, this was not what preoccupied him most of all. It's hard to believe, but if you have conducted a lot of the titles he wrote, as I have, I think he was almost like, Melody, I can do that anytime. But what he was looking for was something else. He was looking to create a world that mesmerized and hypnotized the audience. And Maestro Papano goes on to describe how Puccini achieved this mesmerizing quality, specifically in Il Tritico, in the use of new harmonic ideas that can be traced to the influence of Debussy, the ideas of parallelism, and a specific approach to repetition. Described by the maestro himself, One of the most important devices that, that Debussy creates is something called parallelism. Um, blocks of chords that basically go in the same direction It's a vaguely oriental flavor, doesn't it? Or we could translate in that into a more mystical, a more hypnotic, a more dreamlike state. If I were to play this um, sweetly and expressively, as it says. Uh... Sort of an undulation. The other thing um, that was very, very important um, for Puccini and that came from Debussy was the, the idea of repeated bits of music, S something that I think is akin to a, a groove in pop music or a, um, or a, a riff in jazz music, a sort of a, a, a figure that is repeated often and that you recognize it all the time. I mean, the, also just repetition per se, something what we call in, Ital in Italian ostinato, and this is like this. Uh. Usually two bar phrases, I'll play again. And then it goes on. 
becomes something else. But this and you often hear this kind of figure um, in in movie music. It, it's fluid, it's motion, and on top of it, you can you can just imagine a scene taking place. All this also creates theatrical tension. Now, classical music, as as we know it in the uh, 19th century is based on uh, something, uh, the diatonic scale. It's based on this normal scale and, you know, I mean, uh, everything from Mozart, ba every, everything, and everything, the history of music is based on that and uh, even this, you know, uh, uh, it, these are chords that we recognize and love. Uh, uh, uh. I, so, but how do you create a different world? These chords are based... They're based on thirds. It's something with diatonic language, okay? Something that our ear is extremely used to. Susie, you're on. Okay, now, um, now the real pianist here is... Uh, <laughs> this is Susie Stranders. <laughs> The story of Tabaro is set, um, a boat is moored on uh, the Seine. It's a, it's a transport boat. There's a lot of workers. But we, we want to capture the atmosphere of a kind of a seedy port and kind of a rough neighborhood, but a hazy, very hot day, People end of the day, sunset. And listen to what, it, what is created now. You hear the undulation, the feeling of water. There's even sounds of a tugboat against this. And so with, very, with a very, very um, uh, small device, abandoning the diatonic uh, harmonies and um, using open harmonies, the, especially the fifth and the fourth, which is the fifth reversed, basically. Creates a different sensation in our ears, and that's what, to me, is fascinating. We can really hear the influence of these musical ideas as soon as the opera opens. Il Tabaro is set mostly on a barge, docked on the Seine in Paris, and set more or less in Puccini's present time, around 1910. When the curtain rises, the music actually hasn't started yet, a direction given directly from Puccini. The scene is quite Verismo-esque in feeling. You see the barge tied to the docks, the stevedores or dock workers are loading and unloading crates, the lighting suggests that it's around sunrise, and you are immediately transported to the world of the average manual laborer in early 1900s Paris. When the music begins, the orchestra paints an impressionistic sonic picture of the river with gentle swaying and the rise and fall of a minor melody, which is then colored by realistic touches of foghorns and boat whistles in the distance.
A conversation begins between Georgetta and her husband Michele, who own and live on the barge. Georgetta asks Michele if she can bring wine to the dock workers as a reward for all of their hard work. He says yes and moves in to give her a kiss, which Georgetta gracefully avoids having land on her lips, and instead Michele places it on her cheek. She moves away toward the stevedores with the wine, and Michele goes below. As Georgetta joins the workers in a dance, accompanied by an organ grinder, she eventually ends up dancing with Luigi, and we begin to see that there might be something more going on between them. In this scene, the waltz tune that Puccini weaves into the score, imitating the organ grinder or hurdy-gurdy, is especially fascinating as it bears a strong resemblance to moments of Stravinsky's Petrushka, a work that Puccini most certainly would have at least heard. In Stravinsky's ballet, which premiered in 1911, the orchestra imitates an organ grinder moving through the fair and eventually merges with the sound of a music box, which is accompanying a dancing girl. It sounds like this. In Il Tabaro, Puccini uses a similar orchestration to Stravinsky. Two flutes, two clarinets, and a bass clarinet. Just as Stravinsky's organ grinder tune is often described as sounding like a Russian folk song, Puccini chose a popular French folk song to add some authentic local color to his organ grinder's tune. Dissonant harmonies and intervals of a seventh instead of an octave create the feeling that the organ grinder is slightly out of tune, and the singers converse in recitative-like exchanges over top of the waltz. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> 
Michele returns and the dance breaks up. Giorgetta and Michele begin discussing how business has slowed down, work is getting scarce, and they can't afford to continue paying all the stevedores. Michele suggests that they let a man or two go, and things become tense as he mentions Luigi. Michele becomes brooding and silent, and this turns into a fight between the two of them, with a vendor singing a song in the distance all about Mimi waiting for her lover, a story that Puccini knew well. The scene is interrupted by Frugola, a name that translates to rummage lady, who is looking for her husband, Talpa. Frugola and Drogetta get into friendly conversation, and Frugola shows her the many things that she can fit in her bag, including a little something for her cat. Drogetta sings, Isn't your cat the privileged one? To which Frugola replies in aria form, He deserves to be. You should see him. He's the best-looking cat in my best romance, When Talpa is out, he keeps me company, and together we have a love affair without spite and jealousy. It's better to live on two slices of a heart than to tear at one's own with love. When I first saw this opera, I thought, what an odd little thing to include, but I have since come to find it endearing, as I think Puccini was trying to capture the everyday affection we often feel toward animal companions while also simultaneously digging a little bit at Giorgetta's conscience, as there's a lot of parallels between what Frugola is describing and what we later find out is going on between Giorgetta and Luigi. After this moment, Talpa, Frugola, and the others all leave, and Luigi moves closer to Giorgetta. She nervously warns him to be careful, as Michele might appear at any moment. They confess their love to one another, and we learn that they have been carrying on an affair and Giorgetta fears that if Michele ever finds out, he will kill them both. Michele comes back, and although he doesn't catch them, Luigi approaches him and asks to be let go, so he can pursue work in Rouen. Michele suggests that he stays, as there's actually very little work to be had there either. Michele leaves, and Giorgetta asks Luigi why he asked to be dismissed when just moments before he promised to never leave her. Luigi says that he loves Giorgetta too much, and he cannot bear to share her anymore. They sing passionately of their love for one another, and create a plan to run away together. Giorgetta tells him to come back for her later that evening. She will light a match on the deck of the barge when Michele is asleep or away, and when it is safe for them to leave together. Luigi is prepared to do anything to make life with Giorgetta possible, even kill Michele. They share a passionate goodbye, and Luigi slips away before Michele returns topside. Oh. 
Standing on the deck of the barge, Michele wraps Giorgetta in his cloak, and the two reminisce about their baby boy, who died in infancy. Michele remembers wrapping both his wife and child in his cloak to protect them from the cold and the wind. He tells Giorgetta that he worries because he is twice her age and fears for their future. He asks Giorgetta to come closer to him, tenderly asking her for a kiss, and again, Giorgetta refuses. The conversation turns sour after her cold rejection, and she leaves to go below. Left alone, Michele wonders aloud about how much Giorgetta has changed. He wonders if she's been unfaithful, and if so, who could her lover be? This aria is filled with bitterness and verbal abuse, and then runs through a list of all the possible men, only to dismiss them. Exhausted and dismayed, he lights his pipe in contemplation. Meanwhile, Luigi, who has been watching from a distance, mistakes Michele's pipe for Giorgetta's signal and approaches the barge. This results in a confrontation with Michele, who finally puts the pieces together, that Luigi could be the man who has stolen Giorgetta from him. The two fight, and Luigi admits to being Giorgetta's lover just moments before Michele stabs him. Someone can be heard approaching, so Michele hides Luigi's dead body inside his cloak. Giorgetta appears and begins apologizing for rejecting him earlier. She asks if he wants her to draw closer to him, and she suggests that she come under his cloak. As she approaches, she sings, You know, you used to tell me, every man must carry some great cloak where he hides sometimes a wondrous joy, sometimes a profound sorrow. Michele savagely replies, Sometimes a crime, a murder. Come, hide beneath my cloak. Come here, come here. Giorgetta leans in to give him a kiss or embrace him. He throws his cloak open, revealing Luigi's dead body. Giorgetta screams in horror and tries to retreat, and the opera ends with Michele grabbing her, forcing her down on top of the body of her dead lover. long gestation period of Il Tabaro, Puccini was on the hunt for a companion story that would balance Tabaro in his trio structure. Knowing the story of Tabaro was dark and rather violent, he wanted something that would provide a contrast in mood, sentiment, and dramatic material. In a letter, Puccini wrote, this red stain, meaning Tabaro, must be set against something opposite, a lofty piece where there is space to make music that soars. By the time Tabaro was finished, Puccini considered Adami a trusted friend and asked him for help in finding source material for his next two operas in the trio. Adami looked to Puccini's favorite sources, including Charles Dickens, but nothing turned out that really pleased the composer. 
Then, Puccini's playwright-director friend entered once again, Giovacchino Forzano, and this time showed Puccini a libretto text that he himself had been working on. The story was original by Forzano and centered around a young nun. In Forzano's memoirs, which scholars warn are prone to exaggeration and may not be credible, Forzano claims that after he showed the libretto to Puccini, he discovered that Puccini himself had a sister in a convent who he had a soft spot for, and because of this, Puccini was particularly receptive to a story in which popular notions about nuns were mingled with guilty love, babies, and greedy kinfolk. While we may never know just how deeply Puccini's personal life was connected with this desire to set this story, the end result was nonetheless inspired. Soir Angelica is set entirely within the walls of a convent sometime in the latter part of the 17th century. When the curtain rises, a typical day in the life of a convent has commenced, and once again, we immediately hear the results of Puccini's use of the orchestra to paint a picture of realistic elements using all kinds of sonic effects and musical ideas coming from offstage and all based on very simple repeated patterns or ostinatos that are harmonized in interesting ways. Again, turning to one of my favorite musical pedagogues, Maestro Antonio Papano describes the musical opening of Suar Angelica in this way. Now, this business of ostinato, ostinato, repetition, lulling you into the the theater that we're watching. He does the same in Suor Angelica. We have a bell from backstage. Listen, you, and this mixing of the colors, listen, she keeps the, keeps the pedal on, and you hear the, the bell mixing. It's genius, it's the simplest thing. It's just ding dong, ding dong, but it puts us into a, into a special atmosphere. Listen to the chords now. He harmonized the he harmonized the ding dong now. Parallel chords again. It's almost it's it's, it's almost kind of a Zen feel, isn't it? And they continue singing. You also hear bird song. Yeah. Piccolo off stage. and sweet, sweet, sweet atmosphere. Um, I rehearsed, uh, we did the first stage in orchestra this morning of this piece, and it took me an hour to rehearse all the offstage effects <laughs> for, for Swan Angelica. So the, the idea of music coming from offstage for distance purposes, creating an appetite for wanting to get to see these people, which is a, 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 
standard theatrical device, operatic device, for Puccini certainly, to get to hear our heroine, although we do see her on the stage uh, when, when the curtain goes up, we don't hear her sing. We hear her from off stage, and then finally we, we get to hear her sing. This creates um, mystery and, and expectation. Same happens with Mimi, same happens with Tosca. We see Turandot, um, but we don't hear her um, uh, in Act One. And um, fantastic uh, theatre man he was, Puccini. The sisters are gathering in the courtyard, and when Angelica begins singing, the vocal line is incredibly simple, just stepwise motion. But the way Puccini harmonizes those simple movements is absolutely beautiful, sort of enshrouding her with what Maestro Papano called a musical halo. As more nuns gather, they express excitement at how the setting sun turns the water of a courtyard fountain this beautiful golden color. The sisters remember a fellow nun who has recently passed away and decide to place some of the golden water on her tomb. As the conversation continues, the sisters begin to share ideas about different things they long for. When they ask Sister Angelica what she longs for, she claims nothing. Her response sends the nuns into quiet exchanges of gossip as they do not believe her simplistic reply for a moment. They believe she longs to hear from her wealthy family who cast her out and have not communicated with her in over seven years. A sister from the infirmary asks Angelica to make some more remedies for her as Angelica is gifted in creating herbal medicines. Their conversation is interrupted by the arrival of a guest to the abbey and Angelica feels growing excitement that it may be a member of her family. The visitor turns out to be Angelica's aunt, the princess, or la principessa. The princess has come to ask Angelica to denounce her inheritance as Angelica's sister is to be married and the family would like the inheritance to go to her. Angelica says that she has repented for her sins but she cannot sign away her inheritance as she still longs to be with her illegitimate son that she was forced to leave behind with her family when they banished her to the convent. When the princess offers no response, Angelica grows persistent, asking why the princess will not speak to her of her child. Finally, the princess answers, "'Tis now two years the child was stricken by fatal sickness. No care was spared to save his life." Angelica is completely heartbroken by the news. She falls to the ground, sobbing. The princess brings an inkwell and parchment paper closer, and Angelica understands what is being asked of her. She silently signs the paper and the princess leaves, having acquired what she came for. Angelica is left alone and she sings the most beautiful aria, lamenting that her son had to die without ever knowing the love of his mother.
Angelica then brings all the herbs she gathered earlier for making remedies and begins mixing up a lethal potion. In a fit of despair, she drinks the poison, feeling there is no point in living now that there is no hope of seeing her son again. Moments after ingesting the poison, she realizes that by committing suicide, she has also condemned herself to never see her son again. Suicide is the unforgivable sin, which means she is doomed to eternal life in hell, not heaven. She cries out in despair and begs for mercy. A choir of angels can be heard, essentially petitioning the Virgin Mary to intercede on Angelica's behalf. Then a miracle happens as all of their prayers are heard and the Virgin Mary appears in a space filled with mystical white light. She opens a door, revealing a child dressed all in white, and in the score, the child is instructed to rush towards Angelica. Angelica embraces the child and dies, redeemed and reunited with her son in heaven. We now come to Johnny Skiki, the final work of the evening, and one of the only intentional comedies Puccini ever composed. La Rondine is technically a comedy, although many scholars argue that it is a totally different flavor of humor than Johnny Skiki. I mentioned at the beginning of our exploration that Puccini's original idea for a triptych was to base all three works on excerpts from Dante's Divine Comedy. However, as we have seen, Il Tabaro and Suar Angelica were not based on Dante's work, and instead inspired by a play, in the case of Tabaro, and an original libretto written by his friend in Angelica. Johnny Skiki is the only one of the three that retains a thread of inspiration from Dante, and the story is brilliantly embellished and spun out from just a few lines in Dante's Inferno, a poem within the Divine Comedy, which is a 14th century work in which the poet describes a journey through the nine circles of hell, accompanied by the poet Virgil. The single mention of Johnny Skiki happens in the introductory material of the Eighth Circle, which is reserved for thieves and frauds. Here, Dante and Virgil are approached by two spirits, and Dante describes, That imp is Johnny Skiki, who, enraged, goes all around ill-treating others thus. Then, oh, said I to him, so may the other not fix his teeth in thee, be not too tired to tell me who he is before he skips. Scholars of Dante have further identified the source of inspiration behind including a mention of Johnny Skiki in this poem, discovering that he was from Florence, from the Cavalcanti family. The story of his connection with the Donati family is described in this way by Charles Rosen. 
When Buozo Donati died, his son Simone was haunted with the fear that he might have left a will restoring some of the property that he had unjustly acquired. Before making the death known, he consulted Gianni Schicchi, who, being a very clever mimic, offered to dress up as Buozo and dictate a new will in Simone's favor. This he did, taking the opportunity to bequeath himself a handsome legacy and the best mare in the stables. So already this is beginning to sound a little bit like an opera plot, although some more embellishment was required to turn it into a finely wrought comedy. Shortly after Puccini showed enthusiasm for Suarangelica, Forzano immediately set to work drafting an outline for another opera determined to be the librettist of two of the three works in Puccini's triptych. By 1917, while World War I was still raging across Europe, Forzano showed Puccini his outline for Gianni Schicchi, knowing that the composer was inspired by Dante's Divine Comedy. And the composer was once again immediately drawn into his ideas. Puccini was still working on the music for Suarangelica at the time, but set it aside momentarily to begin work on Gianni Schicchi. He continued to work on the two operas more or less side by side during a very tumultuous personal time. His son, Tonio, was fighting on the front lines, and Puccini is said to have thrown himself into composing as a way of forgetting all other concerns. Both works were complete by the end of April 1918, and Puccini set about finding a venue for the world premiere. When the curtain rises on Gianni Schicchi, Buoso Donati lies dead in his bed with his family gathered around to mourn him. But we soon find out that those gathered, including his cousins Zita and Simone, his poor brother-in-law Beto, and Zita's nephew Ranuccio, are more concerned about the contents of Donati's will than grieving the passing of their loved one. The music is a little mischievous sounding, and it's filled with this little repeated descending pattern. It imitates a kind of lament or a cry, and Puccini perfectly captures the sense of a family feigning grief in a kind of overly dramatic way. Yeah. <laughs> 
Then, Beto claims that he heard a rumor that Donati left everything he owned to a local monastery, and the family is thrown into a frenzy to find the will. Renuccio is the lucky one who finds the will, but he won't allow anyone to view it just yet. First, he wants permission to marry Loretta, the daughter of Gianni Schicchi, who is new in town. Cousin Zita doesn't seem to care one way or the other, as long as Donati has left them all a healthy sum of money. Confident that all will be well, Renuccio relinquishes the will, and as they read it, their worst nightmares are confirmed to be true. The late Buoso Donati left nothing to his family, and indeed left all he owned to a local monastery. The family is shocked and horrified, and they turn to the eldest among them, Simone, for guidance. Simone has no idea what to do, so Renuccio pipes up with an idea. He suggests that they consult Gianni Schicchi, the father of his beloved Loretta, because while he may be new in town, he is clever and savvy. Renuccio is confident that he will know what to do. The rest of the family completely rejects this idea, especially Zita, who claims that being connected to Gianni Schicchi in any way is incredibly below them. Renuccio jumps in to defend his girlfriend's father, singing an aria all about how brilliant and clever he is. Moments later, Gianni Schicchi and Loretta arrive at Donati's house, and we begin to hear traces of a musical theme that will later flower into an aria from Loretta. Gianni Schicchi quickly figures out what's going on, and although Renuccio begs for his help, Zita rudely tries to force him and Loretta to leave which causes Gianni Schicchi to declare that he will have nothing to do with this horrible family. Loretta and Renuccio are devastated. They're in love and they are hoping that this whole situation will make it possible for them to get married. So in a desperate plea for help, Loretta begs her father to look at the will. This plea takes the form of a melody that we first heard when the father-daughter pair walked through the door and blossoms into one of the most famous opera arias, O mio babbino caro, where Loretta is saying, Oh, my dear daddy, I love him, meaning Renuccio. He's very handsome, and I want to go to Porta Rosa to buy a ring. Yes, I want to go there, and if my love is in vain, I will go to Ponte Vecchio and throw myself into the Arno River. I am tormented. If I can't marry him, I will die. Daddy, have pity, have mercy, have mercy. Thank 
unable to resist the pleas of his daughter, Johnny Skiki agrees to stay. He examines the will and decides he will help, but under one condition, his daughter must leave the room so that she can remain innocent in whatever untoward schemes might occur. She agrees and steps out, and Johnny Skiki sets to work. He clarifies that the only people that know Donati is dead are currently in the room. They all agree, and Johnny Skiki reveals his plan. They need to bring in the doctor. The doctor arrives, and Johnny Skiki imitates Buoso Donati's voice from behind a curtain. He asks the doctor to return that evening when we, he will have more energy to be examined. The doctor agrees and leaves the house believing Donati is still alive. Then, Johnny Skiki orders that the family remove the dead body from the room, hide it, while he climbs into the bed, dresses up as Donati, and Donati's relatives figure out that Johnny Skiki plans to disguise himself as Donati, change the will, and then they'll bring the dead body back in and announce his death to the whole town. That way, the new version of his will that is read by the notary and changed by the disguised Johnny Skiki will be the one that stands. Everyone does as Johnny Skiki commands, thrilled with the new scheme, and each relative petitions Skiki to change the will in their favor. After all, everyone wants a piece of the most valuable things Buozo Donati owned, the house, the mule, and the mill. Johnny Skiki climbs into bed already in his disguise, and he reminds everyone that the punishment for being involved in falsifying a will in Florence is quite extreme. The punishment is one's hand being cut off. No one seems too concerned, as they are all focused on what they believe this scheme will get them in the end. The notary arrives, Johnny Skiki, disguised as Buozo, begins to change the will, and the music of this sequence is incredibly brilliant, capturing a solemn, quasi-religious tone in a repeated musical idea, again repeated over and over with subtle changes to the harmonization, and this accompanies the arrival of the notary and is repeated throughout the scene as the disguised Skiki amends the will. All previous wills are deemed null and void, and Johnny Skiki as Donati begins dictating some of the smaller requests that the families have made. Then, they all begin to wonder who will be given the mule, the mill, and the house, as each family member tried to bribe Skiki to give it to them. Much to everyone's horror, he ends up bequeathing the most valuable possessions, the house, the mule, the mill, to his dear friend Johnny Skiki. He's bequeathing these things, essentially, to himself. The family contains their rage while the notary is present because they can't reveal the scheme or else they will all be implicated in it. All hell breaks loose as the notary leaves as they have all been tricked by the clever Johnny Skiki. Skiki shoos them out, saying that they are now trespassing in his house and they need to leave. Meanwhile, the scene changes to Renuccio and Loretta, who have been outside on the balcony this whole time, innocently unaware of the drama unfolding inside and dreaming about their future together. They sing a beautiful duet, admiring the skyline of Florence in the distance, the place where they first fell in love, shared their first kiss, and Renuccio sings of how now they will always be together in the place they love.
John Iskiki, who has chased the rest of the relatives out of what is now his house, returns to see Renuccio and Loretta at the end of their duet. He is so moved by their love that he turns to the audience and asks, what better use is there of Buoso Donati's wealth than making it possible for these two young people to be together? He shrugs and says, even though Dante has condemned him to hell for his trickery, maybe we, the audience, can forgive him in light of these extenuating circumstances. As a whole, this triptych takes us on quite a journey in every possible sense. Temporally, geographically, dramatically, musically, stylistically, psychologically, and emotionally. And scholars have tried to find the connective tissue between the three operas, examining the more nuanced reasons why Puccini might have grouped them together. In my reading, I came across several themes that scholars point out are explored, or at least hinted at in all three works. Death, the love between a parent and child, a protagonist seeking forgiveness in one way or the other, and the idea of escape from one's present circumstances in hopes of a better life. Claudio Sartori said, Puccini has always considered Il Tritico organic. It is an opera of three different acts, but unitary in spirit and conception. Other scholars have argued that searching for any kind of common theme or connection, musical or otherwise, is a relatively fruitless endeavor. As Fidele D'Amico stated, Puccini writes a triptych that has, as a purpose, to show that he can write three operas having nothing in common but this, to be completely different from each other. While this might be a little bit of an extreme perspective, we do know from Puccini's letters that he did want each opera of the trilogy to have a different tinte, a different kind of overall color or substance. And while I think Puccini certainly achieved that difference between the works, as Puccini's scholar Moscow Karner points out, there is a kind of pattern or logic to Il Tridico. The stories as a whole take you on a journey, moving generally in a negative to positive direction, from darkness to light, from despair to bliss, from hopelessness and despondency to optimism, and looking ahead to a brighter future. And the idea of progression through a series of stages can be seen from a slightly different perspective throughout the works. There is a backward progression through time from the present day in Il Tabaro, the present day of Puccini's time, to the end of the 17th century in Suar Angelica, to 1299 in Gianni Schicchi. But then, at the same time, the stories touch on the concept of time in a reverse sort of way. In a way, Il Tabaro focuses on the past. Suar Angelica focuses on the feeling of a relentless passing of time in the present. And Gianni Schicchi focuses on manipulating the present in order to face a brighter future. I think the brilliance of Il Tritico is that it is simultaneously three distinct and different works, while also containing layers of connective tissue that rise to the surface in different ways for everyone who experiences it. So as you go to the opera and see this work performed, watch the HD broadcast, or listen to your favorite recordings, I hope our discussion has given you some new things to think about and helps you experience the work in a new, different, or richer way. 
That was Naomi Baratera taking a look at Puccini's Il Tritico. If you want to keep up to date on all of the Metropolitan Opera Guild's ongoing programs, visit us at metguild.org and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. You will get special programming announcements and information about new podcast episodes. This will be our last episode of 2018, but we'll be back in the new year. On behalf of the entire Metropolitan Opera Guild, we wish you a joyous holiday season. I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you for listening.